a robot that swings a club. This episode of Baseball Tangents was recorded on the 23rd of September, 2017. Good morning, Jeff Hayward. Good morning. What's happening? It's actually very early morning for you there. Well, no, it's not that. I mean, it's 20 to 8 now. It's not that early. Not that crazy. Okay. Anyway, good uh, good Saturday morning, Jeffrey. Um, thank you for being here for this episode of Baseball Tangents. I'm very, very excited today because I have a lot of things to talk about. So I'm going to hit a couple random just bits, and then we'll uh, go into the actual topic uh, of today, which actually centers around um, a couple Giants players. Go on. Past, past and present. Anyway, uh, to start with, I don't know if you saw this the other day. Giants lost. Giants lost the Dodgers last night. They did. Uh, Rich Hill looked good. He was hopping off the mound a lot. Yeah, he looked he looked really good. Hopefully, no more blisters for him. I mean, I don't really want the Dodgers to win. I want Rich Hill to win everything. Hmm. Why? Oh, because he's great. He's so much fun. He's uh, he throws the ball hard. He has this gorgeous curveball. He's old, and he's not had a regular major league career up until now and yeah i don't know he's just Mitchell's delightful he's also a fan favorite of the um one of the other baseball podcasts uh effectively wild and he's just i don't know he's just fun i like like rich hill i wish he pitched for anybody else though anyway um that's okay chris davis honestly it's 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 tough to it's tough to hate the dodgers uh this year when they're doing so well in like a, 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 an historical season you know i think it's easy to hate the dodgers i think it i think it's so easy to hate the dodgers i think it's i maybe it's, maybe let me rephrase it's easy to uh appreciate the game i mean they're playing the game well they have put together a decent team right but I think it's easy to hate the Dodgers. Easy to hate the Yankees. It's easy to hate the best teams who have the biggest payrolls, right? Yeah, you're right. Or when the biggest payrolls are the best teams, it's like, well, yeah, you know, at some point this is capitalism. But you like to see the the plucky upstart do it on half the, you know, half the salary cap of the the big giant teams, and this is why it's like, in my opinion, it's fun to root for a team like the Reds, who are like tenth or twelfth in payroll instead of the Dodgers or Yankees or frankly the Giants um who are all I think in the top 10 of payroll. Yeah, the Giants are like number 4, right? Or number 6. Yeah, speaking of of um just ever so briefly players who are um costing the Giants a lot of money. Mark Melanson done for the season having that forearm surgery. Um Mark Melanson has had a tough tough season. He started the season by blowing the save for the first game of the season for um, Madison Bumgarner, and just has not been good. Let's see here. He has pitched to a ERA plus of 94. I mean, he's 6% worse than the average pitcher in Major League Baseball. His ERA is 4.5. So he's he's struggling a little bit. He's Yeah, he's just not, not being the dominant pitcher he's been in the past. Uh, and he's out for the season, so that's that's fine. That's, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, the, the Giants are not going to playoffs. He might as well go get the surgery and get better and try to be better next year. Um, in comparison, Sam Dyson has come over from the Rangers, and he was terrible there, but has actually been um, somewhat convincing this year. Now, that said, he has pitched um, ever so slightly more innings than Melanson and has a actually has a slightly lower, but not that much lower, ERA, but I anecdotally I think Sam Dyson has looked a lot better and I think is making a lot less money this year. He's making three point five two million dollars this year, whereas Mark Melanson is in a four year sixty two million dollar contract. I don't know exactly what he's making this year. It's a lot more than three point five million dollars. This is why I don't understand these long contracts. I, I guess they happen because, to some extent, of like supply and demand. Well, not supply and demand, competition. Just uh, you know, teams going well. Like I'll offer you four years, and then another team's like, well, I'll I'll offer you five years. But but there's so much risk in having a 
a long contract, you know, like injury, uh, other players just, you know, younger players outperforming the older player. These players like losing their drive, if you will. Now injury, like losing drive, I guess there's, there should only be three. Being outperformed or yeah, like the, just like the, the way the game is played, changing slightly around them, you know, like the way things are managed. You know, if you have a pitcher who has a fantastic throw, like how long does it take for the league to figure out how to hit against him? Well, that's a that's a good question. I I think that some long term contracts are helpful. Realistically, most players should probably play on one or two year contracts. But somebody is willing to go and take more risk to get them for those good two years, which is possibly what the Giants are have done by signing um this guy to this four year sixty two million dollar contract. Uh, for what's worth, he made seven million dollars this year, but next year he'll make thirteen, and in nineteen and twenty he will make seventeen million dollars a year. He was also paid a $20 million signing bonus. In total, he made $12 million actually was paid out this year. This contract is very strangely worded. He made somewhere between 7 and $12 million this year in pay to pitch reasonably well. Anyway, you're talking about the injury and things that can sometimes happen to players who can go on long contracts, which actually is a perfect segue into another set of players I want to talk about, which is Devin Mesoraco and Tucker Barnhart. Who are they? Tucker Barnhart is the effectively the backup catcher for the Cincinnati Reds, but he has actually been the starting catcher for the Cincinnati Reds based on the fact that the typical starter or the guy who should have been the starter, Devin Mesoraco, has been hurt basically since he had his one good season. So if I can bring you back to 2014, a fun year in which the Giants won the World Series, Devin Mesoraco. Take me back to 2014. Doing it right now. Devin Mesoraco. What was going on in, in 2014, Kyle? Well, our president was different. The Dow was at, the Dow was at like 15,000, 15, maybe, maybe 14. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't at 20. That, that could be very well true. We had, a, we had a different president. True. Life was a lot different only three years ago. We didn't have an iPhone with a, a, a full face uh, screen. All our all our iPhones had home buttons. This is true. What a what a world we lived in. Well, we also lived in a world where Devin Mesoraco was an all star and he hit two seventy three, three fifty nine, five thirty four, uh, OPS of eight ninety three, and for catchers that year he was good. Um, he only played in one hundred fourteen games, but that was his career high to that point and continues to be his career high. That's a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing that year the Reds signed him to a four-year 28 million dollar contract so since that season Devin Mesoraco has played in 95 games wow how how long was he in the the league uh up until that season he had played you said like 114 games but over how many years uh he played in 114 games in 2014 uh prior to that he played in years makes no difference 175 total games the three years prior so he's, he's, you know, coming up through the system. 95 games over three years is 486, uh, I'm sorry, 95 games over four years, 486 total games, is 19.5% of the games that he's been able to play, hypothetically. But those are the games he's played in due to injury. He just keeps being injured. So in the last um, three seasons, he's played in 23, 16, and 56 games. His total war since he signed that contract is negative 0.4. That's terrible. Come on, Reds. Yes, it is. So this is kind of a bummer in that you have this guy who looks like a hard-hitting catcher who can play a little bit of first base if you need him to uh, if you're giving Joey Votto days off. And he's young. He just turned 29. I mean, he looks, he looks like he could be good. What kind of injuries are these? He has had multiple surgeries on um, his hips. And his hips? What is he? Eighty? You know, he's a catcher, so I mean, he's in that crouch position a lot. Sure. And he also had surgery on his um, left shoulder uh, at the beginning of last season, and then because he was taking so long to come back, they opted to do surgery on the other hip um, because if he was already going to be out for the season, they might as well um, do that surgery to clean things up. So I've had I've had a few of my own injuries doing stupid things. 
And there have been a few times where the doctor says, well, we could do a surgery or we could try to let it be and see what happens. And so I ask him, what's the risk on both sides? He said, if you do a surgery, there's 0% chance that you will get back to 100%. Okay. If you don't do surgery, there's some percent chance that you'll get back to 100%. With a surgery, it's highly likely that you'll get back to 80%. Without a surgery, it's kind of up in the air, but we can always do a surgery later and you still have the chance to get back to 100%. If this guy's had multiple surgeries on his hips, he's just never going to get back to 100%. I, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here, and maybe these other doctors for this guy are are saviors. But uh, you know what I'm saying? This is crazy. Yes, I think if if I add a little bit of context, so the injury that or the issue that Mesoraco has had is one that I also have had, which is um, a torn ligaments, uh, a torn cartilage actually in the the ball joint of the hip. Um, oh my god! So you've had that? Yeah. So cartilage doesn't heal. That's one of the things it's, it's, um, that it just doesn't. The Ooh. thing you can do with cartilage is you generally can cut away a, like a tear or a rough edge and try to make a smooth edge so it won't catch and continue to tear. And that's generally what you'll do. So, um, A-Rod has had the surgery. Kurt Warner, if you remember him, he's a yeah. quarterback for the, uh, the Rams, greatest show on turf. Yeah. Adam Vinatieri, a kicker, a longtime kicker for the, uh, Pat's had the same surgery. Um, so it's it's a fairly well established surgery. You go in, you clean up the uh clean up the torn ligament and um then or torn cartilage rather, and um give some time to heal. And generally you have the best case scenario you can have going forward with less pain. But hips and these ball joints are tough. All this to say so I stand corrected on my rant of surgeries because maybe this is a, a different kind of surgery. Yes, although you raise a good point that every time you go under the knife, you you do add some risk versus letting the body heal. And for ball players, sometimes there isn't time to let the body heal. You only have so many good years to play, so you want to get get as much value as you can out of the time and and the, you know the body you've got. Right, makes sense. This really does bring you know, come to the point of your previous rant that sometimes these long contracts are not wise. Now, four years and $28 million, it's more money you'd like to see go to this guy, but it's it's kind of whatever. He's Maybe he'll come back next year. It's not crazy. It's not seven years and $100 million. Yeah, it's, it's slightly more reasonable, but for a guy who's only played in 19% of the possible games and not been that good, he's been below replacement level, it's a lot of money to spend on somebody who's not um, not that good. What was it? What was it that that the ownership said? Oh, we see we see this thing in this guy, and so we're willing to put down you know to bet this much money. Well, he had a an all star season as a catcher in 2014. Looking at catchers in the National League, right? So there are 54 people who played who caught. That year doesn't matter. Let's just look at the the top twenty five. Uh, number one, Jonathan Lucroy, six point seven WAR that year, um, playing for Milwaukee. He was good, no no doubt about it. Russell Martin was a catcher for Pittsburgh, five point five WAR, also good. The next guy, very familiar with Buster Posey, five point three WAR, very good. He was incredible that year. Devin Mesoraco, fourth best catcher in the National League, four point eight WAR. He was he was pretty pretty dang good he was the uh he was um an all-star that year and he beat out buster posey for the all-star nomination in the national league through the first half he was even better than buster posey when you have a buster posey like season which is unexpected from a any catcher i mean he's buster posey is incredible you kind of want to lock that up i believe that he was going into arbitration but this way they got a couple of his arb years at hypothetically below value because if he's playing like Buster Posey, he's worth more than seven million dollars a year. But if he's not playing like Buster Posey, he's probably not worth seven million dollars a year. All this to say, this is interesting because the Reds just signed Tucker Barnhart, who has been their more or less everyday catcher while um, Mesoraco has been hurt. 
They just signed him to an extension. It is a four-year, $16 million extension. So a bit cheaper. And Barnhart has not been asked to do nearly what, or been expected to do nearly what Devin Mesrocco has. But that said, um, looking at team player value for the batters on the Reds, batters on the Reds. So I'm just looking at the Reds team here. Joey Votto, 6.9 wins above replacement. Very good. Not crazy to think there. Zach Cozart having a career season, five wins above replacement. Best season of his career. Maybe best season of his career even going forward. A. Eugenio Suarez, 4.1 wins above replacement. Very good. Age 25, super promising third baseman. He's He's been great. The fourth highest war for a position player for the Reds this season has been Tucker Barnhart with 3.4 wins above replacement. Tucker Barnhart this year is making $517,000. He's been worth three wins above replacement. He's incredibly valuable based on how much he costs the Reds. To say he's been incredibly valuable actually is probably an understatement. He's been beyond valuable. The idea is he's worth probably more than $4 million a year, but if he can play anywhere near this, he's going to be a steal at $4 million a year. That said, the last guy they gave an extension to is a guy who has played 19% of the games they expect him to play. There's some risk in doing this. I'm just fascinated by by these contracts. I think you've mentioned this before, but it would be interesting. I think you, you, before you've mentioned like, okay, we'll sign a contract for X dollar, X amount. And every time you hit the playoffs or you take the team to the playoffs or uh, World Series or win a World Series championship, we will give you, you know, an additional $5 million every year thereafter or $10 million every year thereafter on your contract. And it'd be interesting to see other factors like war playing. It's like, we will give you X million times your war yearly. That's, that's a fascinating metric. So loosely, each win above replacement would cost something like, each additional one will cost $10 million on the free agent market. So like a two-win player, or I guess technically a three-win player, could be a $20 million a year player, which is really wild to think about. Right. That said, I think that the way the baseball contracts are set up now with the guaranteed money is probably not going to happen that way. But there are some superstars who you could see doing something where it's like, if we win the World Series four years in a row, I want to make $40 million for each year. But if we don't, I want to make $5 million. And that difference of those $35 million, you should spend on getting all the best players to put around me. Yeah. And if we win the World Series, you're going to make a ton of money from you know selling tickets the next season and season season tickets and selling you know merchandise and stuff. And you'll be able to make up that money. Like I will have earned that money actually. Right. That you know that's a, a fascinating um fascinating idea or fascinating hypothetical contract concept, but we'll see if it right. it actually happens. Speaking of contracts and um just funny funny things like that, um Scooter Jeanette hit a grand slam last night, the fourth grand slam of the season for him, which leads the majors, which is whatever, grand slams are an occasion stat. Um, so it, it doesn't really matter, but it's more of a, it's a representation of your, uh, your batters on your team anyway, right? It's not one person. Cause if it's, if it's just one person, then it's like you're measuring clutch somehow. Yeah. Just home runs. I home runs could be a function of clutch in some way. If like it's a home run when it needs to happen, but like you have to have all the right scenarios for a grand slam to occur. That said. Scooter Jeanette has what feels like a million home runs this year, which I think is actually 27 or maybe 29. Um, but he's got half of the number of home runs that Giancarlo Stanton has. But Scooter Jeanette is making like $2 million a year this year. I'm not actually looking it up, but making basically nothing compared to Giancarlo Stanton, who we've we've talked about how much crazy money he is making. Um, let's see here. Scooter Jeanette is making $2.53 million this year, and Giancarlo Stanton is making 
14-5. And if I get the actual right home run count for Scooter Jeanette, he has 27 home runs. Fun fact also, uh, Scooter Jeanette has one inning of pitching this year. He allowed two runs. Just, you know, not a great time. Anyway, um, Scooter Jeanette, Giancarlo Stanton, doesn't matter. I want to switch topics a little bit to what was actually a bit of research and uh, my actual topic for the for the day here. I'm I'm a little caught up on. You say he he uh, pitched one inning. Yeah, just just one inning. I think it was probably in a blowout. How, we've we've almost gone through this before, but how does that happen? Oh, I mean, if your team is getting destroyed, sometimes instead of blowing, you know, using the arm of a actual pitcher, a team will have a position player pitch how often does that happen more often than you would think today's topic starts actually with billy hamilton who of course it does was our which billy hamilton which billy hamilton new billy hamilton young billy uh-huh. hamilton not the other billy hamilton not the not the old billy hamilton billy hamilton of the 2010 and recent variety so Billy Hamilton is back playing. Uh, the fractured hand is healed enough that he is playing. Um, not playing well, but he's going for the red season, season single season steal record, uh, and looking to get this the single the season steal record or season steal title uh, for this season, which I think he is most likely going to get if he can steal like two or three more bags. You should be able to get it. Is he just pinch running, or is he actually playing? He played center field the uh, last night, um, but he has been only playing every couple days. Uh, another guy called Philip Irvin has been playing, and he's very exciting, but he's not nearly as polished a center fielder. But that said, I was talking to um, another another baseball person that I happen to work with, um, uh, about Billy Hamilton and about how if only Billy Hamilton could just get on base a little bit more, he probably could be uh, regarded as an elite center fielder. And so I okay. thought to myself, let's look at um, just who plays center field in Major League Baseball and how I might be able to compare one to another, just looking at, at where they, they might stack up. Billy Hamilton is the 34th best uh, center fielder by war if I look at people who have played more than 50% of the games at center field this year. So there's 30 teams in baseball. That doesn't bode well for him. And I say it's 50, they played 50% of their games. So there are some people who may have only played, you know, 15 or 30 games. Um, This may be a, a slightly flawed stat sheet, but there are 67 eligible players. That's, that's fine. Right. Um, I mean, some of these guys have played five or six games. Looking at the war for people who have played more than half their games at center field, guess who is the absolute worst center fielder in Major League Baseball this year? Denard Spann. Denard Spann. Denard Spann is so bad at playing baseball this year. He has negative 1.5 wins above replacement. The Giants have played him 122 games this year. Yeah. I do not know what is going on. Brian Sabian, right? That's his name? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not not a fan of this um not a fan of this this guy and what he's doing. I think he's been kind of just terrible. Uh he's making eleven million dollars a year this year to be terrible. Uh last year he was a replacement level player. He was uh, I mean he was he was a one win player not very good playing 143 games just just bad so i started looking a little bit more at what's going on with denard span here who who do, who who uh makes the call on this like what position uh, of the uh you know the management well the general manager i mean bochi operations bochi at some point is like is starting him right because he's the best center fielder he's got and he's making 11 million dollars a year so I don't know. I mean, also to be fair, what what is his um, what is his offensive war? <clears throat> a and B. He had a terrible like he was he was just terrible, insanely terrible for uh, uh, many games. 
what is it game by game? Because does his like being absolutely horrendous some games bring that average down so far that you're looking at this number and it's terrible, but like he's valuable enough on all the other games where he does play well. That's the game by game is difficult to find, but what I can tell you is that his offensive war this year has been good. 1.3. I mean, not good, but fine. 1.3. But his defensive war has been negative 2.5. So he has cost the Giants two and a half wins, rounding error, three wins. Maybe more. By his, by his defense. Maybe more. I, I, I for sure remember a handful of games watching go-ahead runs come through because that guy didn't catch the ball. <laughs> like, it's a completely catchable ball, fly ball. Uh, or like bounce off the wall and he's running one way and the ball is going the other. Things that things that a an MLB center fielder really should uh, be able to judge. A hundred percent. And so that's the thing about this this the season defensive war is that while he may have had ten games where he blew the game, he may have also had ten games where he saved the game. So it's you know looking at the the season on the whole yeah he's he's been bad he in 2014 another fun year 4.2 offensive war he was um pretty good that year 3.7 total war that year um he had 184 hits which led the national league that year he is not not having a great year uh this year so i started looking a little bit at giants center fielders for the last 10 years okay and sorted by war and looking here at giant center fielders and they have had they've had eight uh seasons where they've had a player who had one or better war but not um it's just not a bunch of these are like one oh one 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 two one five so it's like mm, not really that great a couple of good seasons. Andres Torres in 2010, 5.3 war. Pagan in 2012, 4.0. He was good that year. Gregor Blanco in 2013, 2.4 war. Played 141 games. Um, was reasonably good. But if I look at the bottom of this list, this is the last 10 years, so 2007 to 2017. Number 24, Denard Spann this year. He's almost the worst center fielder they've had in the last 10 years. The worst center fielder they've actually had in the last 10 years is Angel Pagan in 2015, where he was worth negative 1.9 war. But to be fair, he also had great, great years. Angel Pagan also had great years. Now, um, Denard Spann had one season where last year he was worth one win above replacement, but still not good. He didn't have a four-win season for the Giants. I started looking a little bit more here at 2015. I'm like, what's going on with this year? What's... What is the story here about Angel Pagan and about how bad he was that year? Because my, what I'm saying is I think Denard Spann is as bad this year as an Angel Pagan was in 2015 when he was terrible. So I tried to think of like how bad Angel Pagan was that year. So then I did a little bit of looking here. So in 2015, I'm just sorting. Are you taking, are you taking a, the, um, the aggregate war or are you doing offensive or defensive? This is aggregate war. Looking at the player in the hole. So in 2015, I took all the players in in the entire league, and I said, okay, just show me the all the players who had one war or less. Just looking at players who weren't weren't great, um, who um, uh, played at least a hundred games, right? So players who were like generally everyday players, but who just weren't good. So there's 98 players on this list. And Angel Bagan just barely comes in next to last place. He uh, is just beaten, beat, beaten in his terribleness by Rene Rivera, who is a catcher slash first baseman for the Rays, by one-tenth of one win below replacement, I guess, at this point. Uh, Angel Bagan, 1.9. Rene Rivera, 2.0. Other fun names towards the bottom of this list. Oh, a third baseman for Boston, Pablo Sandoval, 0.9 war. Oh, yeah. God, I love that. 
you know, it's uh, there's some real fun names of terrible players here. Uh, 2015 was also a bad year for Boston in general. Anley Ramirez, who used to be a decent shortstop, they moved him to left field, and he was worth negative 1.3 WAR that year. This is a fun list of terrible players. Um, yeah, it's a fun list. You know, we were talking about Jonathan Lucroy a little bit earlier, and how in 2014 he was worth a bunch of wins. He was good. He was a second best or best shortstop in or best uh, catcher rather in um, in the National League. By the time he gets to 2015, he is with worth one total win above replacement. Uh, he got hurt that year, and he has not been good since. So now I'm looking a little bit more at this list, and number seven on this list is Ichiro. Number seven worst, I guess. Negative uh, 1.2 war. And it got me thinking, Ichiro is super fun, and he is making like $2 million a year, and I mean, he's already made in his career $165 million, so he's fine. Probably one of the most interesting players in baseball still. He's 43 and still playing. He's had a little bit of trouble putting up good war lately, but last year he put up 1.5 wins above replacement. This year he's basically been exclusively a pinch hitter, and he's currently negative 0.2. 2015, negative 1.2, which is definitely the worst season of his career. So 2015 is fascinating because some players who have not classically been terrible were actually terrible. Yeah. That's, that said, a lot of players who you generally think of as being terrible uh, were also terrible, as it were. Interesting. So that, uh, that's my rant a little bit about war and about Denard Span, about how bad he is and how he's not worth the, the money he's being paid. I don't know that the Giants should cut him because I don't think like Mac Williamson or whoever else they have who could play center field. So center field on their center field on their roster, Denard Span and Drew Stubbs has played ten games of center field this year and hit point zero nine one. He did not even get a hit in one out of ten at bats. Um, they have a guy Justin Ruggiano. I don't know, he's something. Clicks Day has hit 171, playing some center field. Mac Williamson, 203. Aaron Hill. I don't think Aaron Hill is playing right now. They may have even traded him. I don't know who they have center field depth. I really don't know. You know, uh, Stubbs played 10 games. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. You know, it it would be interesting to, to uh, flip on... The the stat tracker what is it what is that called what's that system called Statcast Statcast for like practice and see if you can watch you know measure how how people practice how these ball players practice because practice makes permanent and how you practice is probably how you play and so like what if you know this guy Stubbs who played ten games is actually just killing it in practice every time. And is that, is that more, should he play, you know, should he play in games if he's practicing well, but like maybe, maybe the coaches aren't watching him as much, or there's some kind of bias because span is like the status quo starter for this season. I mean, Stubbs is not good. I think that's, that's the thing to point out. He's bounced around quite a bit. He was actually drafted eighth overall in the 2006 draft which is kind of wild but he he's just not good he's he's not good he's bounced around played for a bunch of teams over the last few years but his war totals the last couple of years have been all at or around negative the last decent season he had was 2014 playing 132 games for colorado 2.7 war but the year after that 0.2 war just not good yep he's just not good it's fine it was a interesting interesting choice to pick him up but i don't think the giants needed to hold on to him the thing i want to tell you was that effectively wild episode 1114 the episode called net gains there's a discussion of the problems with batting practice and the um idea here is that like batting practice is somebody who is 
I don't know, you or me throwing 60 mile an hour fastballs right down the middle. Right. Buster Posey is hitting them. Madison Bumgarner is hitting them out of the park. It doesn't matter. Like, it's not even a simulation of real baseball, right? Right. It's a simulation of, like, backyard toss. They can't make a machine to, like, replicate various throws and randomize the throws. There are people who use, like, a pitching machine, uh, particularly not normally as part of, like, batting practice in the in the stadium they usually do that in like the batting cages Mm -hmm. but i I don't know how often players are going up against like you know a curveball out of that or or whatever um that said the other thing is like even a pitching machine is still different than going up against a live pitcher who's you know mixing up pitches and stuff i mean a pitching machine like are there pitching machines that have an arm you ever see that you ever see that video of uh uh, one of the golfers. I don't know. It's, I don't know any of the golfers' names. Jeez. There's a video of a dude who's like a young golfer. He's a pro golfer, and he goes up against like a a robot that swings a club and has like you know the wrist break and everything. Is there not a pitching? I've, I've seen the pitching machines with the two like flywheels that spit the ball out, but that's not what happens in a pitch. What happens in a pitch is the ball comes out of somebody's hand and rolls off their fingers in a way that spins the ball a certain way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think most pitching machines are just the, the two two wheels that are you know moving at different speeds so that they can get the, the spin on the ball. Well, it sounds like we have some hardware to build. Yep. Does indeed sound like that. Um, randomly about Drew Stubbs. December 11, 2012, he was part of a three-team trade, Cincinnati Reds, Cleveland Indians, and the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks sent Matt Albers, a terrible reliever who plays for the Nationals now, Trevor Bauer, a very good starting pitcher, and Brian Shaw, a very good eighth-inning guy to the Indians. The Reds sent Didi Gregorius to the Diamondbacks. Didi Gregorius, now the starting shortstop for the New York Yankees. And uh, the Cleveland Indians sent Lars Anderson and Tony Sipp to the Diamondbacks. The Indians sent Shinsu Chu, Jason Donald, and Cash to the Cincinnati Reds. Shinsu Chu played one season for the Reds, was good. Used that to go to Texas, where he got a big contract, and it's been terrible. So out of this trade that sent Drew Stubbs to the Indians, I would say that either the Indians or the Diamondbacks came out on top, but probably the Indians, because Trevor Bauer and Brian Shaw are still on their team, and the Indians made the World Series last year. Just fascinating to see how these trades come about. You know who was a, a really fantastic center fielder for the San Francisco Giants? Who's that? One day in history. Uh, is that uh, Willie Mays? Say hey, Willie. Yeah, Willie Mays. Uh, let's, let's do a little... Uh, looking up here the say hey kid which i still don't quite understand where that comes from and maybe it's all over the internet and i've just actually never looked it up well looking up say hey willie mays uh, uh it's not apparently it's not cl- wikipedia doesn't know either yeah i say it's not clear how it came about um could be something for some some jeff hayward research that said let me, no, let me read let me read this real quick mm-hmm. uh one story is that in 1951 Barney Kremenko, a writer for the New York Journal, proceeded to refer to Mays as the Say Hey Kid after overheard after he overheard Mays say, say who, say what, say where, say hey. Another story is that Jimmy Cannon created the nickname because Mays did not know everybody's names when he first arrived in the minors. Quote, you see a guy, you say, hey man, say hey man, Mays said. Ted Williams was the splinter, Joe DiMaggio was Jolton Joe. Stan, uh, anyway, it's funny the he doesn't know anybody's name, so he just calls everybody hey. That just I, I puts a funny picture in my head. I feel like I do that. I don't know anybody's name. I'm terrible at remembering names, and I meet new people, and like <laughs> they're like, "Hey Jeff, how's it going?" You know, like in the like at work, you know, like a new person shows up at work, or like you go to a new job, and you meet everybody, you shake everybody's hands, cool. Yeah, I'm Jeff. Good to meet you. What's going on? And then like. Two months go down the road and like you see a guy like, you know, you, you go in the bathroom and I'm washing my hands and this guy other comes in and washes hands and, hey, Jeff, how's it going? I'm like, hey, man, 
what's up? <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, the F is this guy's name? I don't know. It is it is tough when you can't remember a name. You know, Willie Mays, truly incredible player. Just to think about this in some with some statistics in mind, um, he has black ink all over the place. He was just an amazing player. Um, in 1953, he did not play because of military service. Thing I didn't know. In uh, 1951, he was Rookie of the Year, and um, he was MVP twice. Uh, he was in the MVP voting most every season he played, but he, interestingly, um, so he won twice, and the middle year, he was fourth in voting, even though he had an 11-win season. 11 war, and he was sixth in the MVP voting. I'm sorry, that's 64. Uh, in 54, he was very good, and he was fourth in the voting that year. He was beat by... That's, that's when they won... They won the World Series that year, yeah? Uh, possible. I, you would know better than me. Could definitely look it up. Uh, In New York? Mm, San Francisco Giants. Yeah, they went from the New York Giants to San Francisco Giants in 58. In 54, I mean. In 54, didn't he? Wasn't that a... Wait, in 58 or 56? I, I guess it doesn't matter, but... I think the, the Dodgers went first, right? I thought they came over the same year. I don't know. Now you're making me second-guess myself. They were the San Francisco Giants starting in 1958. That year, they were 80-74, and third in the NL standing. So coming back to Willie Mays, just ever so briefly, he had some incredible seasons. He had one, two, three, four, five, six seasons over 10 war. That's crazy. That is crazy. Like, does that that exist today? It would take me a little bit of time to compare, but I was going to bring up a different comparison. he has 156 career war, just incredible. In the all-time list, that puts him fifth all-time behind such names as Babe Ruth, Cy Young, Walter Johnson, Barry Bonds, which asterisk, and then Willie Mays. Continuing this list just for fun, Ty Cobb, Hank Aaron, Roger Clemens, another asterisk, Tris Speaker, guy I don't really know, Honus Wagner, the man with the most valuable baseball card ever. Tris Speaker played baseball a long time ago 1907 to 1928 he was unreasonably good why does that guy have a who, who's the guy with the uh, baseball card honus wagner why is it so valuable i think that there's not many of them but the for the longest time like a honus wagner card has been so valuable let me see honus wagner the T206 Honus Wagner baseball card depicts the Pittsburgh Pirates Honus Wagner, a dead ball era baseball player who's widely considered to be one of the best players of all time. There are several of these cards that are still in existence. Recent sales of the card. There's one that was in not good condition, sold in September 2000 for $75,000. Five years later, another in not good condition, sold for $237,000. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And one in one out of ten, not great shape, uh, sold for a hundred and ten thousand. Oh, I'm sorry, one is the best in this scale. So a two is pretty good. Some for a hundred thirty-two thousand, uh, owned by the famous collector Frank Nagy, sold a card in two thousand five for four hundred fifty-six thousand dollars. Basically, there's some craziness. And let's see here, the record for a card. Um, was sold in online auction for $2.1 million in October, or I'm sorry, in April of 13. That same card, October of 16, sold for a new record, $3.12 million. No, no point here at all. There was actually a feature film made by the Nickelodeon network called Swindle, or I'm sorry, an American television film based on a book uh, about. Um, this baseball card. Anyway, Willie Mays, incredible, incredible, incredible. Trish Speaker, don't know, don't care. I mean, the rest of this list is kind of incredible, but more asterisks at the top of this list that are kind of frustrating. Well, Alex, Alex Rodriguez, 16th all-time war. With asterisks. Look, it, you still you can't take away, though, the, I, I get the asterisks, but you can't take away the there's some fundamental qualities to these players that make them great. 
like with or without performance enhancing drugs, steroids. Yes. You, you can't change like you and I can't shoot up and go out there and have Barry Bonds eye. He still like he still was before before uh, steroids. He still was an incredible hitter or maybe the best hitter. That's my that's 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 where I'll stop. I'll stop there. So just for fun though, if we take Barry Bonds, like he had a huge uptick in his age thirty five season in two thousand. Mm-hmm. If we take everything from his age thirty four season and before, so we take from two thousand out of his list here. And it's 2000, the year he went from being 140 pounds to 170 pounds? Um, I'm going to say hypothetically, yes, because that's the year when just everything like got crazy for him at 35. Like I think most people are slowing down at that point or holding steady, and he, uh-huh. he went crazy big. So um, I'm just doing a little bit of math here to try to figure out how much or he accumulated in those years. And then we'll see how that moves him. Um, So he generated 51 wins above replacement in those six years, uh, seven years rather, 2000 to 2007. Okay. So if we take 51, if we just take that away, he probably would have had some wins above replacement, but not that many, right? If we take that away, he goes from 162 to 111 which moves him from fourth all time to he would be 18th all time that's i mean that's a pretty big swing he's still one of the best players ever but it's a difference right so that's that's also saying though that like the that he that that is a pretty big swing but his wins above replacement wouldn't be zero in 2000 to 2007 without without uh uh steroids true i'm going to try to figure out what his hypothetical i mean age age curves is are hard right Mm -hmm. also what year in what year was he probably in what year did he probably cease using um performance enhancing drugs I assume that that was his age 2005 season where he had, where he got hurt and played 14 games and he may, uh, only had six tenths of a win above replacement. So his average war before the steroids where he went crazy was 7.4 mm-hmm. per season. Right. Interesting. Okay. So now I'm not looking at it on a chart, but I could chart that out if he saw a relative if i think that he took like a relative um degraded gracefully right which is hard to say but hypothetically because 1999 was actually a down a down year for him it was 3.8 wins above replacement he played 102 games so he played a little less but it might might have been hurt that year but i think that 2000 was when it every everything ticked up because he doubled his war the next year if we look at a graceful decline from his 1998 year, which was 8.1 wins, I think we're going to see something like we say we lose a win per year from there. Sure. Instead of instead of 51 wins, we start at seven wins in 2000. So we have seven wins in 2000 plus six, right? So 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and he played in 7. We'll give him 0.5 that year. So that's that's a graceful decline, which it's more likely he's going to precipitately drop off when he hits his 40s. The difference there is 51.5, which is the amount of win- war he actually produced, versus 28.5, which is what I project him to do by a rough metric. So it's actually 23 wins difference. So if I so it's still a pretty big difference. Yeah. So if I take 23 off uh, where he is there, that would be 139.4 war, which would drop him down to uh, it'd be eighth all time instead of down to 18th. But 
that's a very favorable age projection. Right. Which I think is probably beyond generous. Well, thanks for being so generous. It's nice of you. I mean, I'm, I think I'm the first to say, like, Barry Bonds was incredible as a young man and probably would have been a Hall of Famer, but the steroids, they, they're they a blight. I mean, he had, in 1990, he had 9.7 wins above replacement. In 93, he had 9.9 his first year with the Giants, 9.6 in 96. I mean, he was incredible. Then 8.2, then 8.1. And if he had just stopped in 1999 on a 13-year career, I mean, he he already at that point, Jeff, had something like 100, 100 war. He's At that point, he's already a, he's a Hall of Famer at that point. That's crazy. 103 war. Yeah. And by the way, by the way, he goes into, uh, in 2000, he moves from Candlestick, you know, with the Giants to AT&T or then Pac-Bell Park, mm-hmm. which is not just a difficult park to hit in. It is, and you can back me up because I'm, I'm making a guess, but the worst park for left-handed hitters to hit in. And I think to this day, maybe. It's one of the toughest, yeah. So it's a park that didn't favor him. So the fact that he was that much better is wild. As a as a lefty, by the way. Are you the Barry Bonds fan because he went to Sarah? <clears throat> I mean, he's a he's a I mean, like I grew up watching him, you know, like. Uh, but yes, he also is a Padre. He went to he went to Sarah High School with. Uh, Do you know, he he is a cousin of Reggie Jackson. I did not know that. Um, Reggie Jackson, good, good baseball player. I know he's, I know he's, either a godson or a nephew of Willie Mays. It's possible, by way of his father Barry Bonds, uh, Bobby Bonds rather is his father. Um, Reggie Jackson, seventy three point eight wins above replacement, and as a right fielder, is a Hall of Famer. So Barry Bonds, as a center fielder when he was younger, right? He played all over the outfield, left and right. Yeah. Yeah. If he had just not done steroids, he would have been an overwhelming choice for Hall of Fame. But he's not going to be a Hall of Famer because he went, did all the, uh, all the PEDs. I guess it's, it's a frustrating thing to, like, the, you know, it, the pitchers were doing it too, right? And in every era, there has been, you know, there has always been uh, things that players are doing, you know, to give them some kind of advantage. I guess the steroids are, are pretty gnarly, but w- am I crazy to say, like, the pitchers were, like, everybody was doing steroids in that era? I don't think everybody was. I think a lot of people were, but the thing is that maybe the incremental difference for some people was, like, they were 10% better or 1% better. Uh, I think Barry Bonds was, like, something like, well, by my math, he was 200% better than I think he should have been. <laughs> That's fair. So, yeah, same with Roger Clemens. Like, hypothetically, one of the best pitchers of all time. But he went through this period where he was, like, 200% better than we think he should have been. And it's a little little hokey. But still was incredible. I mean, we could probably do the same thing with him and look at you know, look at the numbers and say he was still incredible no matter what. Yes, Roger Clem is definitely incredible. I f- I feel like you gotta. I feel like the the Hall of Fame group <clears throat> ought to look at ought to look at it that way. To be in the Hall of Fame, you need to be a representation of all things great about baseball. And if you are a cheater, you are not a representation of all things great about baseball. Yeah. All right. You're you're not a good ambassador. Is that really a rule? Uh, I, I think that's the phrasing may be slightly different, but it's more or less like that. The I actually really like that. The idea is that um, all those who are voted in the Hall of Fame are like the best of baseball in every way. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. So like Roberto Clemente, three thousand hits, right? Incredible. But Roberto Clemente also was like a well-loved player he was a humanitarian he did so many great things so even if he maybe didn't get those 3,000 hits which is generally the mark to get into the hall of fame 
like Roberto Clemente was everything that was good about baseball. Like a man who gave back to his community and built homes during the off season and um, tried to bring more fans in. It was like generally a good guy, right? Yeah. That's who you want in the hall of fame. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. So, you know, like um, a Joey Votto or a Buster Posey is a much more obvious choice than like, I mean, Ryan Braun is not going to be good enough to make it anyway, but Ryan Braun got busted for PEDs. So it's, he's just never going to gonna make it ever so briefly because we are way over time here. Last thing I want to talk about was another Giants player who had some incredible seasons, and that's Gaylord Perry. Just doing a little bit of fun looking in baseball reference. In 1972, he had an 11 war season. Since 1969, there are actually only five better pitcher seasons across the entire across the entire entirety of baseball. So 1969 is when they lowered the mound. It's pretty pretty wild to think about that. There have been 17 pitchers who had 10 wins or more since 1969, and it's a fun way to like look at truly exceptional seasons. Dwight Gooden had a 12.2 win season in 1985 for the Mets, which is just wild. His, let's see here, his ERA plus that year, 229. That was uh, pretty good. In 2000, Pedro had an 11.7 win season, but his ERA plus was 291. He was 191% better than the average pitcher in Major League Baseball that year. Uh, Pedro had a 1.74 ERA that year. He struck out 34.8% of the batters he faced. What? Yeah. <laughs> one in three. One per inning. He was good. He was really good. So uh, that's kind of... A 30, 38%? A 34.8. Oh, 34. Got it. Yeah. Um, and so then I would just, for fun, I looked at, since 1969, position players with 10 war or better. And there's actually only 12 seasons and if we throw out Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa and A-Rod who are all aided by performance enhancing drugs, we actually get down to seven total seasons by five players in the last, uh, well I guess since 1969, last 50 years, right? More or less 48 years Um, and the names are fun to look at. Rico Petricelli, 1969 for Boston, uh, bears some more research there because he has no black ink but um was good then uh some cal ripkin you know being great uh mike trout robin Ute, and joe morgan playing for the reds um who had 132 walks that year um which led the league in 1975 just for fun barry bonds 2004 led the league with walks with 232 with 120 intentional base on balls. These are some ridiculous statistics to think about. And I think that could be, um, we could close it out on that note. This has been a Kidlow Audio production. If you'd like to hear more of this or our other shows, go to audio.kidlow.com. That's K-Y-D-L-O. Thanks for listening. Be well. Uh, teams, this will be cut out so that I sound smarter. And Kyle Lewis has spilled water on his desk. It all happened so quickly. Having speaking for so long, Kyle had thirst. No, I'm narrating what happened. Having speaking for so long in this podcast, Kyle had thirst. And to quench that thirst, he saw the glass of water that had been there since last night on his desk. And in a joy of excitement, he reached out to that glass of water and missed and hit it and knocked the water onto his desk. He thought, where are the paper towels? He ran through the house looking for the paper towels, pulling out his hair. I can't find the paper towels. And then he remembered... He was doing honeydews all morning and went over into the bathroom where the paper towels were because he was cleaning the mirrors in the bathroom. He grabbed the paper towels, 
rushed back into his office and started wiping with the whole paper towel, not even time to like pull out a sheet, the whole paper towel wiping down the desk. And thank goodness he had the whole paper towel because that water started to drip on the floor. And when water starts to drip on the floor, you know that's bad news. Because Kyle Lewis's floor is not just a floor. Kyle Lewis's floor is this incredible 200-year-old hardwood floor that can't take moisture. I have no, I don't even know where I'm going anymore. Whatever it was, it was delightful. I heard the last uh, tail end of it here.